0: Welcome to episode 88 of Literary Disco, Justine. Yay! (laughs) Today we'll discuss Lawrence Durrell's novel Justine, published in 1957, the first of what came to be the Alexandria Quartet, a four-book series set in Alexandria, Egypt, each one narrated by a different character within the same social circle. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and radio personality and essayist Julia Pistel, hi guys. Hi. Hey, Ryder Strong. So, Todd, you I almost introduced you as uh, second only to Stephen King, oh, because uh, of a recent nomination that we've talked about. We've mentioned it on the show before, but uh, yes. we want to hear about the whole experience. You were nominated for an award against Stephen King, and he he won. As he he won, he happens to do
1: a lot. As he does. What a bastard! Yeah. It. Um, so the thing was, it was. Uh, I was up for the Hammett Prize, which is given to the best crime novel of the year. Um and it was given out at the North Atlantic Independent Booksellers Association Conference, which was held at the beautiful Doubletree Resort in Somerset, New Jersey.
2: Woo, um, my people. It's a
1: shit-out. Yeah, it, If you're looking in terms of vacations, it's in the greater New Brunswick region of New Jersey, approximately uh, seven miles from the campus of Rutgers. Um, And the day that I flew out there, it was into the teeth of a hurricane. So (laughs) I didn't really see the city for about 36 hours. Um, But I was up for the award against uh, Stephen King, who won, and also James Lee Burke, who did not win and a woman named Krista Foss who wasn't there, and a writer and also human woman named uh, Peyton Marshall who was there and who was lovely and great and wrote a very good book called Good House. Um, And so we were up against Stephen King, and I I basically, my my feeling was simple, which was that if Stephen King wins, that's fine. Like, I'm happy to lose an award to Stephen King. If I lost an award to James Lee Burke, and I'm a big fan of James Lee Burke, happy to lose if i lost it to peyton who i didn't know yet you know that would be fine because we had a lot of mutual friends she seemed like a cool person turned out she was great and she has a great story about a missing dog that her husband is writing about and if i lost to krista foss it would really suck because i'd never heard of her and i think she was canadian and i've got some beef with the canadians um and so i got there and um it was this big conference of booksellers um, and also, all of the publishers were there with their free books. So I got like eighty-seven thousand free books, and I've met—I should should note—a bunch of fans of the show, um, including a lovely woman named Sarah Sawyer's Lovett, who has her own podcast that I promised her I would mention on the show, called Book John Podcast. Um, but lots of fans of the show, which was cool. And uh, Richard Russo was there, who you know oh, yeah. wrote Empire Oh, Falls. you love him.
0: Yeah, I saw you do yeah. a TV with him.
1: Yeah, Um, it was a long time ago, it was like 10 years ago, and uh, he remembered that, and then I, even though we had had that thing, where I sat on the stage and talked to him for an hour and a half, and it was really cool, um, I saw him, and... I just about pissed myself because I just love him so much. It's hard for me to not just be like, "Oh my god, Richard! Rizzo, I love him. I just want to tell you." What how much was his latest
0: you. book? What has he written lately? I still, I feel like I haven't heard about him for a
1: while. Um, his last novel was *Bridge of Sighs*, which came out a few years ago. Um, and then he he had a collection of stories that came out, um, but he hasn't had a novel in um, in a bit. It takes him like five years to write a novel. Um, but, but he all- was very nice and very gracious and, and didn't mind me sobbing into his lap which was fangirling it was just I, it was so embarrassing I should know because like I don't know what it is I, like I saw him and I every confident bone in my body is like I, I was ripped out and turned into a hand puppet and I saw him I was just like Ugh, I just need to tell you how much I love you and then I gave him a copy of my last book and just told him what a great influence he was. Oh, God, I was just a... Was, oh that dude. sounds nice.
2: Let's, yeah, spit, let's turn the was. tables back to our fans. What did they say about us? <laughs> did um, they talk about Julia's They laugh? loved you guys. Did they talk about my laugh?
1: They, <laughs> they did talk about your laugh. Um, w- one person I met there wanted to know um, if we all get together and, uh, and record in person and then explain you know, where we all live. And then they just want to know if we actually like each other. It's always the the same question. I know. Do you guys really like
2: each other? People ask like, me no, that too.
1: Really? I, I have a, yeah, a blood grudge against Ryder.
2: Why the fuck would I do this if I didn't like you?
1: <laughs> Maybe people assume that we are way more successful than we are and we actually get paid to
2: do this. Maybe people think Oh yeah, no. Definitely not. Definitely that not. Could be. Yeah.
1: So let me let me tell you about the coup de gra of losing the sword to Stephen King. So we're sitting at this table in this big banquet hall, and there's you know a couple hundred people there. And I'm sitting at this table with uh, Peyton Marshall, who's sitting beside me, my literary agent, Jenny, um, who has been my literary agent for almost 20 years. And then these people from the organization that put out the Hammett Prize, the International Association of Crime Writers. And they have the award uh, at the table, and it's this big sculpture. And um, they have a, like a post-it note taped over the front of it where the the winner's name is engraved. Oh, and they they there were these people were, were were very nice. And they said, "Todd, do you want to do you want to hold the award?" Oh god. And I'm like, "I really only want to hold it if I'm going to win it. Right. If if I'm not going to win it, That's I don't want to touch it." Yeah, I you know, I'd spit on it if I don't win it. <laughs> okay. But, so I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll touch it. And so like, I kind of held it for a minute and I was like, I could just rip this it off and I'd have my answer, but I didn't. And then my agent sort of looked at it kind of grudgingly and she's like, no, I don't, I don't need to touch it. <laughs> so, uh, we have this very nice night, um, where they, you know, we have, we have good double tree food and then they get up to announce this award. And it's like the, the fifth award they're giving out that night. And so like at this point, like I wasn't nervous before. Like it was fun. I was having a good time. And you know, it was a cool experience. But like, they've given out five awards for different things. You know, Emily St. John Mandel's won something, and Richard Russo's got this Lifetime Achievement Award. And I'm like, oh, for, for God's sake! Now I'm getting a little nervous. And so they walk up, and you know, they they announce the award, and I, and my editor Dan Matenka is texting me at the time, like, have you heard? And Wendy's texting, have you heard? And uh, you get, they get up, and they say, and the winner is. Stephen King, and I'm like, ah, oh, well, that kind of sucks, like, you know, at that point, I wish I had won, and then Stephen King has a prepared statement, and part of the prepared statement is something along the lines of, you know, as I'm just starting out writing crime fiction, this is really a great honor, and I'm like, I've been doing this for 15 years, you're just starting out, it he gets the word, how dare you, how dare you, but he's uh, Stephen King.
2: When it was Stephen King, did people cheer? Or were they just like, yeah, "Oh, you've yeah. had
1: enough"? No, they they cheered, and you know, like it was it was actually cool to lose to Stephen King. Like I I had that moment there where I was sitting in the audience and I was thinking about, you know, sort of the path that had gotten me to that point where I was sitting in a room up for a major literary prize against Stephen King. Yeah, that's pretty. Awesome. It just seemed, yeah, it just seemed unfathomable. Yeah. You know, it just seemed really unfathomable and to be in a room surrounded by all these readers and people who love literature, it was awesome. And my literary agent, Jenny, um, you know, who, you know, who's been with me for 20 years um, since I was just a kid and she was just a kid. She turned to me and she said, you know, did you ever in your lifetime when you were a little kid reading Stephen King books, you know, under your covers, imagine that you would have your name in the same breath as him. And I just said, no, God, no. And she's like, well, then you're not upset, are you? I'm like, No, I'm not upset, of course not. That was a little bit. But uh, no. <laughs> not at all. It was it was cool. It was fun and you know, it it really gave me, um, this real sense of appreciation for um for the struggle and the hard work that we all put into this thing, and to see all these booksellers, and all these booksellers had sold my book, and you know, came up and talked to me, and told me, you know, how much they liked selling the book and everything, and that was really cool to sort of see the human face that goes along with, um, you know, with a royalty statement basically. Um, so that was all uh, very cool. And then um, <laughs> afterwards, I, I promised uh, Peyton that if we both lost, um, I'd, I'd, I'd buy her a hot fudge Sunday at a twenty four hour diner that I saw down the street. So. We went to this 24-hour diner down the street, Peyton and I and, and Jenny, and uh, we were all dressed up, and the uh, the waitress said, why y'all dressed up like this? And I said, oh, we just lost an award to Stephen King. And she said, my husband's a hell's angel, if you ever need any information about the hell's angels. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, isn't, isn't that a secret? And she said, they wear jackets. It's not a secret. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I was like, well, in two years, you're going to see that line in a book. Yeah, you're now a character in my
0: next book. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're way more interesting than your husband to me.
1: Yeah, they wear jackets. It's not a secret. Um, that's, wow. funny. That's, that's kind of a good point. Really pertinent. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was my time uh, losing a literary award. It was fun. Well, yeah. Um, no, you
0: should um, be very proud that you are in the same category.
1: I mean, that's yeah. like,
0: that's coming a long way, man.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was it was pretty cool. I felt pretty good about it. Um that being said, I would have preferred to have won. Why
2: not? Well, that was a shockingly touching and mature story from you, so don't ruin it now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quit while you one a year. <laughs> Quit while you're at it. One a year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, let's uh should we talk about Justine? Yes. Yeah. Um so this is a book that um it's sort of it, it's it's considered a classic, but only by People in the know. It's one of these weird books that I had recommended to me a million times by my very literate friends. Um, one of whom actually owns a a bookstore, a great bookstore um, called Literary Guillotine in um, in Santa Cruz, California. And he, he this is like one of his favorite novels. And I, I have a bunch of friends that used to work at that bookstore, and they all they all sort they all this is like top five, if not top three book for them. And I um, and I've just never gotten around to reading it. Or if I tried to read it, it seemed very slow. It seemed there was something off about it. Um, but I thought that we should we should do it um, because you know the the same person, one of the same people that recommended this book to me, also recommended Stoner to me, which turned out to be along with Julia's recommendation, like such a huge find. Um, and uh, in a, in a, I think a similar category in that it's not a book that's as easily remembered as a Hemingway or Fitzgerald or James Joyce. But, um, I, I think in some ways might deserve to be up there in the, in, in, a, in that category. Um, so I'm curious what you guys thought, uh, cause I, I finally plowed through it today. I, I had started reading it when I was traveling in Bali. Um, and you know, reading since I have had a kid has been very difficult, um, to find more than like a two hour chunk. And i Find that this book demanded time. It is not a book that you can rush. And uh, no. so I found myself having to read 100 pages today, which normally wouldn't bother me. Uh, normally would be very fast, but that took me all day because this is a slow reading book, which is part of the reason why I had never gotten through it before and, and one of the things we can talk about. Um, but I'm curious, though, what you guys thought.
1: Well, I had read it before, um, maybe five or six years ago. Um, Wendy, I think got me the box set of all four books um, for Christmas one year because I, like you, I had been told, Oh, you got to read this. You got to read this. And so she, uh, she bought me the box set. Um, And when I originally read it five or six years ago, it, it was a, a, it's a really challenging read. It's hard to read because it's um, it's nonlinear and there's no actual scenes and there's no definitive timeline. Uh, And you're, you know, it's, it's a smart, hard, difficult, challenging book about love and obsession and place. Um, and so, the first time I read it, it took me like like six weeks to get through it. Yeah. And then I, I read it again in over the course of just like the last week. Um, and I, you know, I think it's it's obviously a great piece of art, but I also think that um, it's ponderous and overwrought um, and you know that's a function of the kind of book that it is um but that you know I, I never I never read the the other three books which I, I suspect I probably should have um but it it's so slow moving that it calls attention to the fact that it's a book and I'll I'll go back to that point later on but sometimes when I'm reading I don't want to feel like I'm in the active pursuit of reading I just want to feel like there's a movie in my mind yeah. being played right And that's impossible while reading Justine.
2: Well, um, to back up for myself for a second, uh, we had an incredible, amazing thing happen, um, which is that Ryder said, hey, I'm reading Justine, and Todd was like, oh yeah, that's really fucked up or something, let's read it, (laughs) and...
1: (laughs) I <laughs> I love that that's my my sort of vague No, no you were like, response. you said,
0: it's a weird book. And I said, yeah, it's just kind of about people screwing each other, right? Like, it's just like a romantic triangle. And we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. And I was like, okay. okay. I was only 50 pages in at that point or something. Right. right. So,
2: unlike you two, I had never heard of this book, actually. Um, and I also, as hopefully all the listeners know, I'm more, even more of a classics geek than you guys are. So... What happened for me is I I challenge all the readers to go and put in Amazon, like, Justine novel or Justine book or, or Goodreads or anywhere, because I checked multiple sources before making this mistake, and I purchased um, Justine by the Marquis de Sade. It was his first novel, and <laughs> I bought it, and I read a bunch of it, <laughs> and I was, like, ready to go, and then... Yesterday,
1: <laughs> except that except you had to unchain Greg to get to the podcast.
2: Uh, it's his first novel, so it's a little more tame. Uh, but uh, it's a coming there's of age. no like
0: sewing of orifices <laughs> shut and choking. And I mean, he
2: get,
0: his shit gets really weird, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So anyway, but I, you know, it's literary disco. Like that seems like something we would read. Honestly,
1: we should, um, yeah, we should do it. Then. We should, We probably should. So, yeah. <laughs> I,
2: I wrote in an email to Tucker attaching these two guys on there being like, yeah, our next episode is Marquis de Sade, fun, or something. And writer's like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> so anyway, that resulted in me uh, first laughing at myself, and second, I, I was left with only a day and a half to read this book. Um, and I live in Connecticut and I don't have a car. So what I had to do was I downloaded it on audio and I listened to it. It's 10 hours. Um,
1: who read it? Anyone interesting? Read it.
2: His name is, hang on. I'll pull it up for you. Cause he did it. In my mind, he did it's job. Colin Firth. It's not Colin Firth, but it is similar. Lee British.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lee British. Yes. I love Lee British. One of my favorite actors.
2: Uh, hang on a second. I do want to say... He's known
0: as the Colin Firth.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Lee British. <laughs> Old Lee
0: British. Takes every role that Colin turns down. it's, a, it's Everyone knows that. You're going
1: to love him in uh, Wuthering Heights. Lee British as Mr. Dursley. <laughs> Did
0: you guys catch the Bronte slight in here?
1: Yes, there's a ton of slights against all kinds of literature yeah, here.
0: There's one line where he's like... We're not cartoons. We're not Bronte characters. And I was like, "Whoa, okay."
2: Oh, dang. Lawrence Durrell. the gauntlet yeah. for
1: the geeks in the room. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, you know so while I'm looking this like... up, I do actually have something intellectual to add to the conversation. Other than that, I'm an idiot and always double check who the author is of the book that you're googling. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, um, I had a different experience than what you guys are describing because I had no choice but to let it wash over me one word at a right. time. Like I could not go That's slow right. and I also couldn't speed up or skim or skip. So it was actually amazing because as I hope we'll talk a lot about, you know, he's such an incredible sentence writer and I've listened mm-hmm. to a lot of audiobooks for this, um, experience we have going here at literary disco. And this is the only one where I, I mean, I had to carry a notebook with me all day because I kept having yeah. to, like, grab it and write it down, and it was just so arresting, but it was also, like, a rainstorm because I couldn't stop or whatever, and I finished five minutes before recording today, so, like, there was no – it was just, like, a barrage of beautiful words and no plot, but no right. no plot is very good if you're doing audio and you're like, okay, I'm just going to submit to this, and it's music, and I can right. – be as attentive as I need to be. So, the thing
0: I was worried about cool. with you, though, was that there are huge passages of this book that are in quotations. Right. Because he's reading another book inside the book, and I would have been completely confused by that. Like, I was flipping back and checking, wait, are we still in quotations? Uh, because not only is this book about Justine, uh, you know, this fictional character, but within the book, somebody else has written a book about Justine um so there's this woman is like doubled in the book um and i i i have a feeling you probably missed part of those or they probably blended together maybe in a good way um but i was trying to think about how they would narrate that like quote well, unquote because it's huge it's like 20 pages stretches. it's huge there,
1: yeah there's that whole section like in the page right in the like, middle. 75 on that is just him quoting from the book yeah
2: well, my friend who narrated, whose name is Jack Claff, uh, who was a, really that's good. That's a
1: great. That's a great British name, like for a beggar in, in Oliver Twist. Jack Claff, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's it was. That's a
1: bad British accent, because like I don't do voices.
2: Uh, well, you just did.
1: <laughs> I just did forever. Uh,
2: but he was. I mean, to address your point, he did. He was very clear um, with different character voices and with. Um, starts and stops of different sections, but I did, I mean, I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. I'm just going to not even try to hang on to what is happening, and luckily the sentences are so beautiful, they'll just come at you. And then, obviously, there's points, particularly when he's talking about Bad Dancer Melissa, you know, that become very clear um, mm-hmm. and very plotty, so, you know, I'm sure I... so. We,
1: we should give out a little bit of just the regular yeah. just the general plot is that there's the narrator of the book who does not have a name in this book um, but has a name in other books in this uh, quartet um, is a aspiring writer and school teacher in Alexandria, Egypt in 1936 I think? 1937? something like that and he is in a love triangle with a woman named Justine who is married to a man named Nassim? Um, and at the same time, just the narrator is involved in a relationship with a um, woman named Melissa, um, who is vaguely a prostitute, I guess. No, she's a dancer. Um,
0: she's a stripper. She's like a, a, an exotic yeah.
1: dancer. Yeah, an exotic, a dancer for money. Do anything for you, yeah. as Tina Turner once said. And then there's um, a bunch of other characters that drift in and out of the book inside of this strange love triangle that they're all involved in in, in Egypt. And we're, there's a, a novelist named uh, Purse Warden. Um, there's an artist named Clea. There's another artist named Balthazar. Um, there's uh, a mysterious uh, crossdresser named Sobi. Um, there's, all, there's a lot of a fun bizarre. characters
0: There's some of the best yeah. character descriptions Like who's the like barber Like the way he describes the barber This like hunchback uh, There's yeah. some really fun Fun characters um, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I would say that like That's the way that this book operates Is the, the, the prose Like the sentence structure Like you guys have both said And then the character descriptions I mean there'll be five pages Just introducing a person
2: I ha- this, is, this was one of the first ones Where I just like dropped everything i was doing to write this down and then went back to look it up um because i thought this was like the best description i have ever heard of any character um it was about i forget which character it was but um someone who was just like made everything sexual and it the Mm -hmm. description is under his eyes chairs became painfully conscious of their bare legs that's one of yeah, the best that's lines line ever. Line. Right? I, yeah, I, I it's a great line. Just like stopped, and then of course it goes on to describe other inanimate objects that become sexualized. But I mean, that's incredible. That that changes the way that I see chairs, uh, <laughs> that's, and that's, right. that's saying a lot.
1: Chairs are where the people go. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> Whoa! Call <and> back.
0: You, <laughs> boom! Call back to like our third episode. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Um, there we go. And. and so the the book itself is i I said it to begin with it does not adhere to linear time so instead of it being episodic it starts basically at some point many years after the events of the novel itself and then instead of it being you know on july 1st xyz happened and on august 1st xyz happened it's a series of one time and this time and that time which gives it sort of this ethereal sense of Existing outside of time where the only thing constant is the evolution of the city of Alexandria which is pretty amazing and deft on um, Durrell's part um, but it, it doesn't lend itself to as Ryder was saying earlier an, an easy read it's you have to really concentrate because it's 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 a stream of consciousness of a Joycean level while also being really sort of Modernist. Yeah, um, in it's, it's suspenseless.
0: Talent. There's no suspense. Yes, there's. I mean, there is. Which is weird is because a, it builds the, it on it becomes
1: you. a. As, it also becomes a spy novel yes. for about the for last a 40 pages. Yeah, but yeah.
0: It's, it, it, well, that's the thing. It actually. That's why the book worked for me is that the last 50 pages are incredible, and you really believe anything is possible at that point. Like I didn't know. I felt like violence creeping up on me, and I felt like somebody mm. was gonna die, and it was not yeah. gonna be good. And all this sex and drugs and rock and roll was finally gonna come crashing down, and, but I didn't know how it was gonna happen. And he really plays with you at that point because he's strung you along for the entire rest of the book with nothing happening, and you've gotten to the you've gotten so used to the idea that you're in a suspenseless world, a plotless world. Um, I don't. I mean, I, I, I. don't think we should give away the plot. I don't want to have spoilers on this show because the, it is so minimal. But I, right before right. we recorded, I, I read the original New York Times review of this book, and they give away the entire plot in like what paragraph? They're like, yeah, this I happens and this too. happens and that happens. And he's like, but he yeah. does that intentionally. He's like, so that's it for story because that's not the point. Um, which is such a bold move, and it's something I'm I'm honestly torn about as an artist because I spend so much of my career as a writer, because especially as a screenwriter, all that matters is suspense. All that matters is mm-hmm. making sure that your audience s- sits there for two hours, or a- an hour, or half an hour, however long your project is. If it's a TV show, or a film, it's all about attention span, and capturing it, and maintaining it. Whereas a novel is not, it doesn't have to be, because we're going to put it down. But I feel like, as a culture, we have gotten to the point where, like you're saying, Todd, our novels are basically indecipherable from our movies in terms of uh, pacing right. and plot. And um, and I there's, there's something I really appreciate and loved about this book, which is that when I went into, like, hour two, when I finally stopped checking my email, checking my Twitter, doing all my crap, mm-hmm. and I was actually two hours into reading this book, I reached a state that I hadn't reached for years reading a book, which is a, a very like meditative, reading, deep level that was wonderful. And, and and what I was starting to enjoy were those lines. Like you were reading you know, little lines here and there, um, moments and, and character beats. And then by the end, it totally, like I, I wanna read the next one because I'm fascinated because apparently it's a completely different character's point of view which adj- right. which shifts everything. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is, you know, Franzen does the same thing, but Franzen does it all within one novel. And I feel like we're so compressed now, so much of our literary tradition for the last 50 years has been moving towards easier reading, choppier sentences, more, you know, right to the point. And, like, Franzen is brilliant at that. I love him, but that's what he does, right? Like, he doesn't have sentence is the last paragraph he doesn't keep you there's no meandering nothing characters that that don't you know it's it's very pointed and and but he does the same sort of thing that i think this project did in four books he'll do in one novel and i think there's something valuable to being able to take a step back and and enjoy a book that's this slow
2: well i think Well, first of all, I think multi-point-of-view books are so popular right now. I mean, Franzen does it, but Mm he is not alone. I mean, like, we all, to really bring it down a notch, we all love Game of Thrones, so it's the same thing. Um, There's a million. There's a million examples.
1: There's a ton. um, There's a ton of them now. the
2: thing is, like, what makes this different, and this is all, it all goes back to Rashomon, right? We should have Mm -hmm. read Mm -hmm. Rashomon with this. But what makes this different is many of those attempts feel like an easy way to get around plot. It's like, okay, well, how do I then go to this place that I'd rather write about or this part of the plot like, is easier to tell from Circe's point of view or whatever. But <laughs> this is the opposite of that. This is just embedding yourself in a consciousness, and that's it, mm-hmm. you know? And a, you don't and, have to read.
1: A nameless consciousness, it should be noted. I mean, yeah. that, that's the really sort of cool thing, amongst many that he does is that he does by not naming the narrator he he being Durrell forces you into the story and into the to into inhabiting that man um and asking yourself is he or is he not a reliable narrator and all the things you're being told are you to believe them particularly since all these people in this book seem to have their own pretty profound agendas about how they want to live their lives and you know the conspiracies that they're part of Um, and you don't get that in multiple points of view novels because you have a check and balance for everybody mm-hmm. most of the time, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 get, you get fed a lot of information here. We get no information. Right. We, we only get what this guy sees and then his long thoughts and his conversations with other people, which are very expositional because they're all talking about Justine over and over again. Um, but there's also but, an, I mean, there's an aspect yeah. of
0: it too that's not just about slowing down and patience for me, but it's also like when you throw out these other examples like Game of Thrones or or Friends and like even the Corrections, like you can imagine them as movies uh, or TV shows. You mm-hmm. know, or in Game of Thrones case, it's sometimes it's actually kind of better as a TV show than as yeah. as, as a book or series of books. And like when the Corrections, which was was going to be a movie, it got canceled. But I was excited to see. Noah Baumbach direct The Corrections because I was like, yeah, yeah, that'll be good. I don't want... There should never be a movie version of Justine. There might be. There should not be. Oh, there is. It shouldn't... Because it doesn't work. Like, this is only a novel. And it only could be a novel. And there's something to that. There's something to embracing the art form on its own terms and to not, you know, to really dig in. And it's something that we're not doing that much with fiction these days. Um, And... For better or worse, like there's part of me that thinks, yeah, well, and there's a good reason. We've moved on. Like this is too slow. This is, you know. But there's other part of me, like when I actually got to the end of this book, I'm so glad I made it through because I think it's brilliant, right. and and I feel something that that I I don't feel from other art forms. I don't get it from music. I don't get it from movies. I don't get it from a TV show. Like there's this is an experience that only a novel could have given me, and that's that's pretty great. And I think that that's something we should remember and strive to to hold a place for in our literary um appreciation
2: i totally agree
1: apparently in 1969 a bad movie version of justine was released no, sure it's
0: horrible you know
2: why well, michael, is...
1: oh god michael york is the narrator guy oh so that ruins it
2: i mean it's to go back to what you were saying earlier writer of like movies being all about like and of course if you make a youtube video or any kind of Thing like this where you're trying to get people to keep watching you know the obsession to measure and market exactly has become so great in our culture that what you're really describing is consumerism and like this novel is like not a consumer adventure it's, yeah it's, it's the polar opposite it's like here it is and you know like i i feel like if people didn't even read it he might daryl would have been like, okay, whatever. You know, it, it really felt right. like... It, it reminded me most of two books. One, The Sound and the Fury in its structure mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, ambition. And two, um, this book that I'm sure I've mentioned to you guys, but uh, it's The Journal of Jules Renard, which is this random French artist. And somebody put together... Oh, it was Tin House. A little collection of, like, snippets from his journals. So he's not famous, and it's, like, completely weird and basically pointless but the the attempt of him to like create these perfect observations and sentences over and over is just mesmerizing and hypnotic and that's really how i felt um about these sentences you know what it
1: reminded me of um and i i hadn't read it uh the first time i read this is the end of the affair by graham green oh
2: yeah um yeah which
1: which is a much more sparse book and much more plot heavy um, but it's also about the, the mindset of art, which, which this book is a lot about, about the creation of art, the creation of literature, um, and, you know, sort of the interior struggles of people who create art for their livelihood. Um, that's a big part of the end of the affair, but also all of the religious overtones in the end of the affair. And, um, in this, I mean, there's a, there's, I, I don't think I knew what Kabbalah was, um, when I read this book initially and then of course everyone was into Kabbalah for that year. Um, but there's this weird Kabbalic sect in this book, um, which, you know, it wasn't Madonna or anyone. So it was surprising. Um, but I, I totally agree with you, Julie. It, and I think that sort of anti-consumerism, no one's going to read it. It doesn't matter thing feeds into what I think is sort of the can be overwrought. Yeah. Um, for instance, um, this is on page 114 in my Penguin Classics version. Um, it, it's a great... There's this great awful dinner party um, where Purse Warden, the novelist, uh, gets drunk and does terrible things. Um, but at one point the narrator is looking at Purse Warden and he says, That evening he was savage, silly, and witty by turns. And listening to him, I remember thinking suddenly, colon, quote... This is his thought. Here we go. Here is someone who, in farming his talent, has neglected his sensibility, not by accident, but deliberately, for his self-expression might have brought him into conflict with the world, or his loneliness threatened his reason. He could not bear to be refused admittance while he lived to the halls of fame and recognition. Underneath it all, he has been steadily putting up with an almost insupportable consciousness of his own mental poltroonery, and now his career has reached an interesting stage, colon. I mean, beautiful women, whom he always felt to be out of reach as a timid, provincial world would, and then right. it goes on, this thought that he has for a full page. Well. Most of my thoughts are like, oh, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> or, yeah. I'd like fries with that.
2: <laughs> I mean, I get what you're saying, but overall, and I don't know if this is because what, um, because I was listening to it. But for a novel that is drifting and uh, unapologetically plot-free, I actually thought mm-hmm. what made it work, and I can see why people love it, is the clarity of at least most of the sentences or many of the phrases. Like, here's some some more that I wrote down. Um, she looked like a film of herself without a soundtrack. I mean, that is mm-hmm. not overwrought. That is perfect. No. Um, or... Uh, we were watching the city unwrinkle from sleep. I thought that was so beyond genius. No, there's, um, there's,
0: there's so many. The, yeah, the, the one that I yeah, literally t- wrote "ug" in the in the margins, <laughs> though, like because I, this, this is on page twenty one. Jo- Georges Pombal, a minor consular <laughs> official, shares a small it's flat with me in the Rider Rue des Emblydennes. He is a rare figure among the diplomats. <laughs> In that he appears to possess a vertebral column. Just say he has a spine. Like, what? A vertebral <laughs> column? Are you fucking kidding me? And like, I I, you know, I'm in Bali with my wife, and she's reading a book, and she's like, this this prose is just really purpley. And I'm like, you have no idea. And I start reading passages of this book out loud. She's like, you need to throw that in the ocean right now she was like that's the worst book i've ever ever heard and i'm like no, no 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 it's actually good because there are passages that blow your mind do you guys remember the camel killing passage yes, yes. i mean that is one of the most beautiful yeah um it's it's actually uh, within the book within the book but it's right. i think at, at that point but he's describing alexandria through this book within a book And just listing different things about the the city. The old moneylender, drunk and snoring, drawing in with every breath the compost, odors, soil, excrement, the droppings of bats, gutters choked with leaves and breadcrumbs softened by piss, yellow wreaths of jasmine, heady, meretricious, and then add screams in the night behind other shutters in that crooked street. The bay beating his wives because he was impotent. The old herb woman selling herself every night in the flat ground among the raised houses. A sulky, mysterious whining. The soft palm noise of the bare black feet passing on the naked mud street. I mean, it's like, it just, it's beautiful. And you get this, Right. it goes on and on like that for pages. And you actually sensuously enjoy the sentences, but then yeah. also completely have a very, like you have a color palette, you have a smell palette, you have a taste pa- like by the end of this book you understand alexandria i i never want to go there but i get it you know like you feel it in the same way you do having been somewhere like in the, the in a, it's like a memory sense of a place um and that's beautiful and that's really hard to be and
1: but i and i wish that there was that same sort of um precision with the dialogue because the dialogue by and large is a little weak um, it's, it's not just weak. It's, it's not how people sound like there's this bit. Clea is describing Justine, um, to the narrator. And this is an actual line of dialogue that she says, the true whore is man's real darling. Like Justine, she alone has the capacity to wound men. But of course our friend is only a shallow 20th century reproduction of the great, uh, hetera of the past, the type to which she belongs Without knowing it, lay, cheris, and the rest. Justine's role has been taken from her, and on her shoulders, society has placed the burden of guilt to add to her troubles. It is a pity, for she is truly Alexandrian. No, no one has ever. You sounded know what like it sounds that. like? I know. Well, no one has well, ever talked like it that. It sounds
2: translated, and I don't know right. if that's. You know what I mean? It sounds translated mm-hmm. from a romance language.
0: But I, I, I. But hold on. But I think that that's important because I think that that's why I want to read the next book. Because apparently the narrator's voice changes drastically, and and the perspective, and I think that the Justine never leaves our narrator's head. Do you know what I mean? So he's right. filtering that whatever Clea Clea said, he's filtering and and reinterpreting, like translating into his book. And I apparently right. the voices are very different. I don't know if that actually is true in terms of prose, but in terms of perspective and um, attitude and. Philosophy—it's like completely different book to book through the throughout mm. the four books. Mm-hmm. So that's what part of the reason why I wanted to to read the next one because I felt the same way. I was like, it's starting to feel a little um, just one one voice throughout you know running throughout this whole book, and there's not enough diversity. But there's it, 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 there's also something there's a weird idea that's introduced in this book, and it, it keeps coming up over and over again, which is um, this concept of like. The idea of a person being more important than their actual personhood or their actual physical reality, right. which is so weird, and I've never, I've really never encountered that. Yeah. And it, it comes up when somebody is dying, and they find out about it, and they're like, you know, debating whether to go visit him in the hospital. It's him and Melissa, and they have this conversation, and he, our narrator, has this moment of like, it's better, we like him better as a concept than as a physical reality that we have to go visit. And it was so disturbing to me because it felt honest, and it felt mm-hmm. um, it felt like I was reading something that I, we all organize our life narratively. I think in a lot of ways, and here he was pointing out that we create stories of ourselves, and that excludes people or includes people, and recognizes their pus- personhood wholly or not, you know, to various degrees, and and our narrators is, is constantly evaluating his ability to see people for 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 individuals outside of himself. And that is awesome. Like, I find right. that so fascinating. And I and the fact that he put that into um, the book and into the consciously like there's multiple references to it, for me, is the saving grace of the whole book, because it, it allows me to embrace the the, the 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 monocular view of the narrator, um, which frankly is incredibly sexist and orientalist like
2: yeah you know
0: there's some yeah. really weird passages where you're like what are you talking about you are completely and, and i mean that is maybe even a bigger question that we can still talk about because i think Durrell is, is very much a product of his time in terms of um his perspective on non-expats that live in alexandria for instance <laughs> who he yes, consistently clearly. reduces to just calling them blacks or he relates them to animals by the end of the book, there's like multiple it, like he was like a dumb ape, yeah. And you're just
1: like, oh yeah. god. It sort of reminded me of Camus in uh, this right, yeah. very similar. Um,
0: well, it's a similar, yeah. yeah. And 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 the and Justine too as a person, like just the reduction of this woman to, or actually the elevation of this woman to a concept, which is very much a reduction of her actual personhood, is fascinating to me. And obviously, he complicates that. Um, but I don't know. How did you feel about that, Julia? I mean, I, 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 mean, definitely... I feel like I
2: always do. It's just like, yeah. uh... <laughs> And then, right. okay, this is the time. <laughs> I mean, there's just a whole genre of incredible British literature that is so colonialist as to right. be. <laughs> well, I think you guys will either not get this at all or love it. Like, at times, we were definitely in uh, Taylor Swift's Wildest Dreams video uh which is her it's her latest single uh and she's like like in the sahara and she's like and the like the wind is blowing and she's like looks like elizabeth taylor or whatever but you know and it's all like you know like gazelles exotic desert right and there's no do you
1: watch mtv julia where do, where do you see these videos? Um, okay, YouTube? well, actually,
2: that goes with my story. The only reason I saw this, I, I really rarely watch videos, um, was because people were tweeting it around because there's no black people in it. It's just like...
0: Right. It's set sh- in it's generic Africa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: It's a colonialist era, which we all collectively romanticize. And that is, you know, like, if you like Casablanca, like, this is a hop, skip, and a jump away from that. So, right.
1: <laughs> uh, At least there's a black guy in Casablanca. <laughs> yeah.
2: But there were writers who were complicating
1: yeah. that. You
0: know, like you read sure,
2: the Forster, sure, sure.
0: passage to India, it's like, that's what it's about. And he's aware yeah, of it. Right. He's addressing it. You read Rudyard Kipling, yes, he's not. Like, he's a complete colonialist. And unfortunately, I think Durrell is much more on the colonialist side.
1: Um Well, yeah, well, Durrell, just according to his biography, he is a British citizen of Irish parentage, born in the Himalayas of India. Mm-hmm. So... You know, he he grew up in the thick of colonialism because he would... I mean, this book came out in 1957, so he was born, you know, in the early 1900s.
0: But isn't it remarkable that his ability to humanize people people on the page, which he does incredibly, doesn't extend really to true locals of Alexandria. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess Justine is apparently an Alexandrian local. She's like a mixture of different races and then, of course, right. her husband, Nassim, is a copt, like a, you know... A, a, a coptic Christian. A coptic Christian. But yeah, but he's a Christian. like. And then there's the one passage where he talks about Christians getting beheaded, which is just this weird, like, colonial nightmare that's clearly not true. And he doesn't question it. He presents it as, like, as if it's fact, and almost as if the narrator saw it. So I, I, I it's a complicated thing. I, I, this Here, book, I, I'm curious to read the other ones again for the same reason.
2: Yes. I mean, I... This is a thing, I think, with a lot of these kind of novels is, like, I don't want to make excuses for racist writing, but it's very different because at least it's a diverse world. Even though he's treating these people terribly, there's not... They're not all white people, and that is very right. different. They're not the expatriates of today who <laughs> <or> are probably <laughs> five white Germans and Americans sitting in a youth hostel like we're in Egypt. You know, like they're right. interacting with right. a huge a huge swath of characters. Or even so, like another
0: another book that I thought of was Tenders the Night by Fitzgerald, which as far as I can remember is all white, you know, they're yeah. in Europe. But it's like, you know... Mm-hmm. We're international people. It's like, are you are you really or are you just Americans spending money abroad?
2: But yeah.
1: Let me ask you guys an important question then, because you brought this up, Julia. Have you guys heard the Ryan Adams cover album of the Taylor yes, Swift album? Yes, and I 1989? don't even want to talk
2: about this with you because I listened to it based on yours and others' enthusiasm, and I'm just like, what the heck? This is just mansplaining. This is just we like we have to get Ryan Adams to tell us that Taylor Swift is a good songwriter, which most people already know no i don't
1: i don't necessarily believe taylor swift is a good songwriter i just happen to believe ryan adams does incredible work with the material that he He's has her welcome to new york song her welcome to new york song is horrible but sometimes somehow he is able to through his deep-seated existential pain and guitar strumming make it sound heartbreaking bad blood but doesn't that just mean now? that his deep existential Absolutely pain and his heart his guitar strumming is such bullshit
0: doesn't that just mean that yes. it's, like, as easily reproducible as <laughs> yes. her dance moves? It's all bullshit. I mean, yes. I love it. I love it because yes. it exposes me yeah. for being the complete raucous that I am. Like, I basically, yes, yeah, no. But it makes me, like, because I'm listening, I'm, I listened to it, and I was like, well, all this proves to me is that Ryan Adams has written a lot of shitty songs. Because, <laughs> and I, I just don't yeah, know it. No, right. it's just, yeah, like, these are good songs, and I like listening to good pop songs with this kind of filter, this Ryan Adams sound to it, so... Why right. that means that his other songs are not really well written. Like half the time, I'm just waiting to get, are just looking for that Ryan Adamsness, and like the song itself is not really that catchy or good. That's all it made me. Think. I and, like. But, I right. love
2: that. That's your that. conclusion, and not the other way around. Which is, it's okay for like sad middle-aged men to like enjoy Taylor Swift. Which it totally is. She oh, it totally is. But I just
1: songs. don't. I like I, no no I, I, I like have my no music problem with middle aged like, with middle-aged men liking Taylor I Smith. like my music I don't. makes make
2: me cry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Ryder has a weird I just thing don't
0: with listen
2: music.
0: to pop. I just don't listen to pop music. That's yep. all it is. I don't listen to pop music either. I don't listen to happy music. My music is all depressing. Like if it's music that's made to make you get up on the dance floor I'm not going to like it. Like, I'll I'll, I'll I'll appreciate it, but I'm never going to choose to listen to it. So you know if her songs that, are slowed down found. and acoustic and suddenly echoey <laughs> and there's a sad dude singing them, I'll totally listen. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm not... And that's the lyrics true. are not great, let's be honest. Like, they're not bad, but they're also not great. Like, that's yeah. the, the key have you guys, factor to Have you guys
1: songs. used the... Uh, have you guys used the Discover Weekly um? That's all I'm listening Spotify. to now. You guys... Yeah, that's all I'm doing right, right now. Right, so what, what that shows me, like when that playlist is generated for me, I love every song and that every song is by a guy in sort of beat up jeans and <laughs> he's got a guitar and he's talking about a city in a song and I'm like, oh yeah, what I gotta get back you to You guys Christi. need
2: to branch out. You would not tolerate this sort of narrowness in your reading or your movie watching.
0: No. <laughs> gotcha you no know, but but it's also but doesn't doesn't music get like it, uh, for me i'm just being honest about what i like it's i'm not saying it's better in any universal sense like i just know what yeah, i want to listen to like what I want to listen to is somebody with like a sad fucking voice, male or female, going like, "It hurts so bad. I'm so miserable. It's snowing outside. Thank God I'm in this cabin with my small group of friends who understand me. Like you that's live my in dream. LA that's surrounded that's, by happy people. But guess what? I do every year on my birthday. I go to Big Bear and I sit with my friends and we listen to sad music because that's what I love. I don't know why. It's just me. Whatever. I'm. Exp- I'm exp- that's how I like to listen to my music.
2: Whatever. Maybe it's I mean, an antidote to the rest of your—I need to uh, reassure the listeners—beautiful, positive, happy life that you have around totally, you. Totally. Maybe you just totally. need a little downer.
0: No, I, I oh, also ying think ying. that I also think that this comes from Todd and I being a little older than you and being much more inundated with, like, the rockist tradition. You know, the whole concept of, like, guy and a guitar. Like, by the late 90s, that was— com- completely being dismantled, and good. I'm glad it was, but I still grew up with, like, Bob Dylan is God in my mind, you know, and, like, everything that sort of splinters from the Bob Dylan tradition is what I listen to, which is really simple musically. It's not very, comp. there's never more than four instruments, right? And it's, like, always some dude complaining. So, I I mean, I just know that that's what I like, (laughs) and I've tried. I listen to other stuff, and I go, that's good. That's really good. I'm never going to replay it. Like I'll never re, re- so, replay a Taylor Swift song. Well, what, the what, music what I that did, I, do so basically I tur- I played the Ryan Adams ba- game where which is a game that I invented, which is you create a Spotify list which is the 1989 songs and then I took his latest three albums and I played them for my wife and my brother and I said tell me which ones are the 1989 Taylor Swift songs and no one could do it, myself included. No. It's impossible. And it's impossible. It, it was like, wow, it really is inseparable. Like so I to- the the point, if there's a point, like, I get it. Like, yes, all music is equal. And his songs and her songs clearly have interchangeability within them and, and same qualitative value.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to say that I do like the style of music that we are discussing. I just, like, <laughs> almost every single day I try to listen to music I've never heard before. So, like, the other day I was writing and I just listened to bonger music for, like, five hours. And it was awesome. To,
1: to what music?
2: Bhangra. You don't know what bhangra is?
1: Nope. No. It's bhangra. like
2: Indian Bollywood mu- music. You would know it if you heard it. Guys, okay. you gotta get yourselves out there. It's great. There's it, a whole world out are there. Are
1: there Bollywood singer-songwriters who are sort of like 38 and just newly sober singing about their buddy Manish? Probably. And yeah. How they're getting clean together? Yeah. That I'm into it.
0: See, it's, it's interesting, though, because like I know we've encountered this with the story songs episodes, that, Julia, you're not as, like, you're so, you're very omnivorous when it comes to music. Like, that's clear. Yes. But you're also, do you have, so, are you attached to songs? Like, do you have songs that you're like, of this course. is me? This is, or do, is music like, okay,
1: okay.
2: Yes, so absolutely. What, do
0: they fall into any recognizable tradition? Like, what kind of patterns do they have? Well, like, are they usually I, a sure. female singer? I just want to
1: briefly apologize to the listeners who were enjoying an episode? About A very Christine. intelligent
0: episode.
2: <laughs> Until...
0: <laughs> and this is fascinating. This is this, look. Our whole show this is about is. taste, right? So here we are talking about taste. yes So and this is an examination of taste. Like I'm curious. Right. Do you listen? So this is Can
2: critical. You... This is critical. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is that my? So I pretty firmly believe that like anything that was like aggressively in the culture when you were like between 12 and 14 is very huge in your taste because you have 12. hormones and whatever. Right. So for me, the music that was being made at that time that I was more attached to than I can possibly describe is really not being made anymore. Which is very angry feminist lady music. So, oh, that
1: music's still out there. It's still out Ani, there. You just have to find it.
2: Ani. Well, sure, sure. But, like, if you think about how it was in the culture... Melissa Etheridge... Melissa Etheridge, Gwen, Gwen Stefani, Alanis Gwen Stefani. Morissette, mm-hmm. Fiona oh, yeah. Apple. Like, those were all at the same time. So, right. I... You know, emotionally, those I Those are very that, raucous.
0: But... That's, like, chick yeah. raucous. Yes,
2: yeah. exactly. So, and, you know, like, I, I pity, you know... <laughs> I pity the girls that don't all grow up with that, like, screaming every day at you in the radio, like take this pink ribbon off my eyes like that was great that was a great way to grow up mm. Tori but yeah but also we've discussed this on our story songs episodes you know i've studied music and done a lot of music stuff so i'm not, often not listening to lyrics and i'm often more listening to sound and you know the actual musical structure so that changes my taste a lot too because i don't care what the lyrics are basically especially when it comes to like taylor swift all all lyrics to all pop is dumb But, um, you know, some song structures are really cool. So, yeah.
1: But what about, like... So, for instance, I have been listening to fairly nonstop the Dr. Dre Compton album since it came out. um, Right before the release of Straight Outta Compton, the movie. And it basically goes against everything that I stand for as a human being. Um, It's misogynistic. It's violent. um, It's, you know, it's... It's horrible to women, just like everything Dr. Dre has ever done is horrible to women. And yet, I absolutely, unabashedly, am a huge Dr. Dre fan and have been since I you was love the music. fourteen. Yeah, because it's funky. Like I, I'm yeah. barely listening to the lyrics, but then I'm nodding along with it, and and you know I'm it, it's I, I just absolutely love it. But you know, if I play it too loudly in the house, like I'm on the other side of the house and I hear. You know, Dre killing and strangling a woman And then raping her or whatever I just think, what am I what am I doing? You know, why why am I giving money To the stuff that I abhor? Then, by the same I'm... token You know, it's not like I don't Create art that is against everything That I stand for also um, Okay, it's a I'm weird so thing. glad you're saying this you're Because
2: you're bringing it back to Justine And I'm so happy Because I think for me What makes Listening to Doctor Dr. Dre or I mean like I don't want to say it's okay but I mean I also really like Eminem which I've mentioned before Mm -hmm. um but for me the content of music like the meat of music is not lyrics so and just as in Justine I don't think the meat or the content of this is the like social systems that it's highlighting you know it's just part of the it's just like an added okay, but that detail in itself
0: is, but that in itself is a problem that's that's the colonial yeah. mentality isn't it like exactly oh, we're a yeah. group
2: of european
0: or pseudo almost europeans speaking english and french to each other doesn't matter where we are our city is just this backdrop this exotic exotic sure, backdrop sure. and then maybe it'll produce a really hot woman we can fuck and share and talk about like, that's the really poisonous part of Justine that you can't get around. It's mm-hmm. like, yes. they don't think, they don't consider their social system because they have the privilege to avoid it completely. Right. They can just stay in their, you know, the money's not really a problem in this book. Like, Well, it's because it's they're the all leeching off Melissa. of
1: Nassim. You know, that that's yeah. the other thing, is that Nassim is very wealthy and a lot of the other people in this aren't, but they leech off of him. Right. They, they right. take his that, social a, standing.
0: But it's very the privilege that Durrell has to be able to avoid... Any of those issues that just makes it kind of icky,
1: right? You
0: know, and, and like, and I agree, it's it's outside of the boundaries of the book, but isn't that the point of like colon- post-colonial literary theory? Is to like Absolutely. we're supposed to bring it back and say, look at this, it was there whether they wanted to recognize it or not, and you know, lucky for you, white guy, that you could write this book. Like no one else in Alexandria could. They didn't have the time, or right. money. Like they were they were trying well, to. Let me
1: ask people. you an important question. Do you think? ryan adams could cover justine and make it as good <laughs> can he put out let's his justino let's, let's put it down. <laughs> that that should be that should be ryan adams challenge for from here on out you know what ryan make star wars i want you to do star wars <laughs> i want you to cover justine actually i saw ryan adams covering a brian adams song recently oh my god and, the world um, is well,
2: he finally eating did some,
0: no he finally did summer of 69 yeah and it's like a whole story it's a whole story because yeah because he kicked a guy out of a concert years ago for screaming summer of oh.
1: 69 and, and
0: then all of his fans like to piss him off started saying summer of 69 and then it just became this thing where people were goading him because they knew it was this a weak a weak point but, but he yeah so did he, he did that and He's run grown. to you
1: And on on his live album, someone screams, Brian Adams. And he's like, you know, scream that all you want. Brian Adams made some pretty goddamn catchy songs. (laughs) And you're like, oh, right. Yeah, he did. But, you know, we still all know Summer of 69 because Brian Adams somehow reached into something empathetic in all of us where we want that simple emotion. Um, just like Lawrence Durrell does in Justine. <laughs> I love Boom. the song Summer of 69. I'm going to say, it. for the record, that's a great song.
0: It's it is. so well, catchy.
2: You know what, guys? I feel that we've reached our moral, social, <laughs> literary limit. We've covered it all. We've done everything we're going to do tonight. This
1: is the essence of the disco. We, we have gone <laughs> we did. from post-colonial to Brian Adams release, in one hour. We should release
2: the readers from this.